Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organization, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. It has been another fascinating week in the financial markets, with equity markets having one of their best weeks for nine months. And investment trusts, finally, you might think, putting in a good performance too, with a number of trusts that have derated heavily among the bigger beneficiaries. The investment trust index, comprising around 180 of the trusts that are in the FTSE All Share Index, was up 2.5% this week, helping the average discount to narrow from well over 17% to nearer 16%. All 10 of the largest trusts by market capitalization produced a positive return, led by Scottish Mortgage, up 4.1% on the week. Is this perhaps a potential turning point for the fortunes of the sector, after 18 months of positive and persistent derating? Some plausible reasons for starting to think so are beginning to appear. Several brokers have been pushing the idea that the derating of alternative asset trusts, in particular, has been overdone and it seems that the message may have achieved some traction, with a number of core infrastructure, renewable energy and commercial property trusts all making good gains this week. Some 20 trusts, led by the early-stage space investment company Seraphim Space, ticker SSIT, rose by more than 10% on the week, and 50 by more than 4%. Alex Reit and Supermarket Income Trust, two of the biggest commercial property trusts in terms of assets, and both on discounts that have been as wide as 25% this year, were among the group of gainers, up 7.8% and 6.9% respectively. Movements in equity investment trusts were less marked, and overall the picture was more mixed, it has to be said, with roughly one loser on the week for every two gainers in the investment trust universe. Still, progress of a sort. Given what a large factor rising bond yields have been in driving the persistent derating in the sector, Hopes that we are indeed now close to the peak in interest rate rises globally was one factor behind these encouraging price movements. Core inflation in the United States notably came in at just 3% year-on-year according to the latest data, suggesting that the Federal Reserve, although it has strongly hinted at least one more increase in interest rates still to come, may now be close to the end of its rate-hiking program, which was of course designed to drive out this surge in inflation. And until a small but late reverse on Friday, bond yields in both the US and UK uh, dropped, with the 10-year Treasury off around 0.2%, and the 10-year gilt off a similar amount. In contrast to 2022, therefore, when both equities and bonds sold off at the same time, now they're both rising together, while the yield curve is starting to steepen. It's all very intriguing, not least because the resilience of markets is in stark contrast to ever direr warnings, the latest this week from the US Congressional Budget Office and the Office for Budget Responsibility in the UK, that government debt levels are set to reach unprecedented and unsustainable levels in the next few years. To discuss all this, I'm joined this week by one of our regular guests, Alistair Lang, the CEO of CG Asset Management, manager of the Capital Gearing Trust, one of three very popular trusts, the others being Personal Assets and Ruffer, which aim to preserve the real value of investors' capital through all types of market conditions. 
As it happens, while their long-term track records remain very positive, including successfully avoiding serious losses in the big market sell-off 2022, this year has seen all three trusts struggle. Capital Gearing Trust share price is down by 7% over the last 12 months, thanks in part to the shares moving from a premium, where they've traded for many years, to a 2% discount to NAV, the level at which under its uh, zero discount policy it commits to buying back shares and return the share price to trading around par. While there are differences in the way these three trusts go about implementing their absolute return objectives, the three have all suffered losses on their substantial holdings of index-linked government bonds as real yields have risen, but they remain convinced that the equity markets remain fundamentally overvalued and therefore have missed out much of this year's striking AI-inspired market rally in the US. We discuss the trust's recent performance and whether clear value opportunities are now appearing in the investment trust universe. Looking at the markets by region, it's however still a mixed picture. China, Europe and Wonder of Wonders, the UK equity markets were among the best performers, with the FTSE All Share Index up 2.5%, fractionally ahead of the S&P 500 Index, which was up 2.4% on the week, while the mid-cap FTSE 250 Index was up a tad over 3%. The Japanese market, meanwhile, paused for breath flat on the week after a strong run so far this year, which has seen it return more than 20% in local currency terms. In the bond markets, by contrast, both gilts and index link posted gains as those yields edge lower, although all nominal gilts in issue are still yielding more than 4%. Also notable was the strength of the pound, which this week reached 131 to the dollar, its highest level since March last year. Oil and copper prices, meanwhile, firmed, and gold was also in demand, up to around $19.60 an ounce. This week's Investment Trust profile for subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle features Riverstone Energy, a US-managed entity which invests mainly in private energy assets. It listed in 2013, but has since bought back roughly half its shares in a so far unsuccessful effort to eliminate the permanent discount at which its shares have traded. As noted last week, I have also posted a series of charts summarising the performance of markets and investment trusts so far this year. Not particularly pretty viewing, with my quarterly video review of some significant individual trust performance to follow. Next week, roughly a year after his move from winter floods to J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Simon Elliott will be back here to talk about his perspective on developments in the trust sector over the last 12 months. With a passing mention, I dare say, of the ashes and an update on one of the key issues we discussed at regular intervals when he was on the podcast every week. Namely, whatever happened to Barry Manilow? For the newer listeners who are not perhaps sure what I'm referring to here, we'll have to tune in next week to find out. Once again, there are only a few announcements of note this week. On the corporate side, the most striking came from the board of Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact, ticker TLEI, a relative newcomer to the market. It IPO'd only back in December 2021, and a trust which, to be frank, appears to be in a mess, and I suspect won't be around for that much longer. It failed to raise as much money as it aimed at its IPO, with its plan to create a diversified portfolio of unlisted sustainable energy infrastructure assets in Asia, and has since been forced to report serious operational problems at two of its investment projects, leading to the shares being suspended in April. The company has been unable to publish its annual report for the 2022 calendar year, while its auditors and an outside consultant investigate the valuation of its key assets. Having warned a month ago that the Trust faces an $8 million write-down 
and more than $30 million of potential liabilities from the cancellation of its big solar venture in India, the board said this week that a further material reduction in NAV is likely when the shares return to trade. In the latest twist in what is developing into something of a mini-saga, a number of shareholders linked to the Trust's fund managers are requisitioning a general meeting in an attempt, it seems, to force a continuation vote, something that the board intends to resist. Now, normally it's the board that initiates continuation votes, and it's rare for an investment manager to do so, particularly in circumstances where its performance is being called into question. The board says it's extremely disappointed that this group of shareholders are seeking to force a continuation vote before the full details of what has gone wrong are known. So it's recommending a vote against an immediate continuation and pointing out that the shares cannot return from suspension until the audit and the accounts have been completed. So this is going to run for a little bit longer, but I think the end result is not much in doubt. This trust has uh, failed to deliver And the argument about the continuation vote appears to focus on the issue of how much and whether the investment manager will be paid fees for a sustained period. With discounts widening, more companies are looking to launch buyback programs in an attempt to limit the discounts at which their shares trade. This is not guaranteed to work, but one trust that will be pleased by the market's response is the aforementioned Seraphim Space Investment Trust whose announcement of a buyback program helped to trigger its sharp share price recovery this week. Although it has to be said this only served to bring the discount in from 70% to 50%. The board of Seraphim Space said that it will not do share buybacks up to the maximum 14.99% that it will be allowed to do, uh, but remains confident it has sufficient cash of $35 million to fund its expected needs over the next 12 to 18 months. It said also that 11 portfolio companies had closed uh, new funding rounds in its latest reporting period, with Seraphim taking part in two-thirds of them, six at a higher valuation and only one at a lower valuation than before. Another trust with issues to resolve, US Solar Fund, ticker USF, uh, also said it will be launching a buyback program, this one to start in September. Uh, Following a strategic review that it uh, announced last October, the board has decided it would not be appropriate to sell the company or its assets and has rejected one offer it has received as inadequate. Instead, it has mutually agreed with the current investment advisor that the advisor's contract will not be renewed beyond April 2024 and is now looking for a replacement. Another smaller investment trust, RM Infrastructure Income, ticker RMII, has been consulting shareholders about its future. It has a market cap of only around $78 million, and reported that shareholders are overwhelmingly supportive of what it's doing, but noted that its small scale posed a question about its future viability. It is considering an, an indicative approach it's received from another investment company. Analysts seem to think that a rollover or managed wind-down is the most likely option here. Turning to results now, the largest trust reporting this week was Hypnosis Songs Fund, ticker S-O-N-G Song. The music royalty company, currently valued at just shy of $900 million, which reported a 3.8% increase in what it calls its operational NAV, its preferred reporting measure, for its latest 12-month reporting period. The trust is facing its first five-year continuation vote in September, and while the NAV total return since IPO has been impressive, 100% give or take, the shares have fallen to a 50% discount to that reported NAV. 
so shareholders will be looking to the board for action to address the derating, such as buybacks or asset sales, to validate the NAV, although the room for manoeuvre is limited by its 30% gearing. The trust valuers have kept the discount rate it uses to value its catalogue of songs and artists' other income at 8.5%, uh, which some investors clearly think may be too low. Every 0.5% increase in the discount rate would reduce the NAV by 7.9%, according to the company's estimates, but with a corresponding benefit if the discount rate can, however, come down. So this upcoming continuation of vote will be a good test of how far investors are willing to tolerate relatively poor share price performance and the extent to which they believe in the future and the NAV, or what it really is worth, of the trust. A bit of a test, in other words, for this new asset class. Other trust reporting annual results included three smaller trusts, Artemis Alpha, ticker ATS, which reported an NAV total return of 1.3% for its latest year, some 5% behind the FTSE All Shares 6% equivalent return. But that trust is nonetheless increasing its dividend by a tad over 10%. Also, Myton UK Microcap, ticker MINI, M-I-N-I, whose NAV per share was down 29.5% as smaller microcap stocks tumbled in the sell-off we've seen since the start of last year. And Jupiter Green, ticker JGC, which reported an NAV total return of minus 0.4% for the year to the end of March. Again, in this case, slightly better than the MSCI World Small Cap Index, which was down on equivalent basis 3.1%. This trust is another one that's facing a continuation vote in September 2023. Uh, and despite its long-standing commitment to environmental investing, it has failed to gain much traction. It has a market cap of just 50 million and a five-year NAV return of 31% over the past five years. Among companies reporting interim results, the standout name was Polar Capital Global Financials, ticker PCFT, which announced an NAV total return of minus 8.1%, which is more or less in line with its benchmark for its latest period, which ended just as the mini-banking crisis amongst regional banks in the US was coming to a head. The trust had very limited exposure to any of the banks which subsequently failed. As always, you can find a full summary of all the most important stock market announcements by listed investment trusts on the Moneymakers website, together with our weekly summary of the main movers in share price, NAV and discounts. So in this interesting week, it seemed like a very good moment to uh, catch up with Alistair Lang, who is the CEO of Capital Gearing Asset Management. And Capital Gearing Trust is one of the defensive trusts that have served investors very well over the years, particularly during the tough years. But in common with this peers, has been struggling this year. The performance, I think, has been uh, a little disappointing. The uh, share price is down and uh, it's moved to a slight discount, which is unusual also for the trust. First of all, Alistair, thanks for joining the podcast again. I don't know whether we should start by talking about the markets as a whole, or we should start talking about Capital Gearing Trust and why it has had this relatively poor performance uh, so far this year, in fact, over the last 12 months. I guess the real reason is that what you think about is happening in the world and what the markets are thinking at the moment are not quite in sync. Is that a fair summary? That's a fair summary, and no doubt it's the fault of the markets for being wrong. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, that's not the way it works. Jonathan, great to be back. So I'll touch in a high level on both of those things, really. Capital Gearing Trust on an NAV level is down about 3% over the last 12 months, which is disappointing, as you point out. The share price is down more, 
And that's because the share price has moved from a two premium to a two discount. I'm very happy to talk about discount control mechanisms. I'm sure we will. But suffice to say, that's as wide a discount as this company can get to because we will buy in shares at around a two discount. So going back to the portfolio performance, minus 3% over the last year, it has been a very interesting 12 months. Rewinding the clock, we really were in something close to an everything bubble. Clearly, equities were very fully priced. Credit spreads were pretty narrow. But we also had a bond bubble running at the same time. That combination made it quite difficult to find uh, defensive places to hide. A lot of defensive assets have some interest rate sensitivity to them, most obviously being government bonds. And really anything other than the shortest duration bonds have been somewhat undermined over the last 12 months as inflation has risen and interest rates have gone up together. So we had a pretty short duration portfolio, but in hindsight, not short enough. And that has caused our assets to come off about 3%, which is uh, in total return terms, which is not disastrous, but it is disappointing. I mean, you're proud of your record over most financial years anyway, at least you've very rarely uh, had a negative return. And this is perhaps the first one we've had for a while. And that is disappointing. But as you say, it could have been a lot worse. But the real reason is you have a very low weighting in risk assets, including yes. equities. And the equity market has been surprisingly strong in some markets this year, the US in particular. A lot of talk of a bubble there as well, but the markets do what they do. And of course, you've got a very heavy weighting in bonds, and bonds have been really hit by the uh, increase in yields. To pick our way through this, let's start with your big weighting in index linked. We have seen an increase in real yields as well. Have you been disappointed by the way that index linked have performed during this latest 12-month period? Well, index linked bonds, particularly in the UK, have been incredibly weak. As it happens, our index linked portfolio has done pretty well. It's pretty much maintained its value. But the overall index, which in the UK is very long, but I believe is off close on, on 30%. And that really, there'd been a sell-off all through last year. But in the Liz Truss, Quartan kind of debacle in September, October, that market slid very dramatically indeed. And after a little rally, has dropped back down towards its lows. So our portfolio, as it happens, because it's very short duration in the UK, we did pick up the inflation accruals. Index-linked bonds increase in value with the uh, inflation index. And we didn't get hit too badly in, in the sell-off. So we've actually been really proud about the performance of that portfolio. And we've taken the opportunity to extend our duration after the sell-off. So that's buying into the better value that is available. And taking a step back, what does that mean today in terms of value? You can get risk-free returns in the five to 10-year area between 1% and 2% real, depending on whether you're talking the UK or the US. That means in practice that you have a credit risk-free way of generating a return ahead of inflation by one or 2% ahead of inflation. And we think that that's a really very attractive proposition today for the conservative investor. 12 or 18 months ago, these kind of returns were in the minus two or minus three area. 
So it's been a very significant move, but it leaves us today with good value. And of course, behind all this is a question of what is happening to inflation and where that might be going. It is coming down, coming down sharply in the US, not alas in the UK so far. Uh, how does that influence the way you manage your index linked portfolio? In other words, you look at the real yields, but in terms of deciding how much duration to take and so on, uh, how important is the inflation factor and where you think it's going vis-a-vis where these things are priced? Yeah, well, firstly, I'd say we're undoubtedly in a disinflationary environment. The numbers came in the US yesterday actually were far better than expected. We're seeing outright deflation in China, and that is exporting some disinflationary impetus to, you know, globally. And we're coming off power price peaks kind of 12 months ago, which just mechanically adds a downward pressure. So even though in the UK inflation has been stickier and is likely to remain higher than in the US and in Europe, I think in all developed market jurisdictions, we're going to see inflation coming down. In terms of managing the bond portfolio, there's a complex interaction between inflation and interest rates, and then the pricing of index-linked bonds. So ultimately, at a high level, I think if inflation is coming down, if we hit peak interest rates and some of those short interest rates are either flattening out or coming off, that will boost nominal bonds and it also boosts index-linked bonds. So you can have this kind of irony where during an inflationary spike, our index-linked bonds just about came out flat. But we could see in the disinflationary period, as real yields and nominal yields fall, we would expect to make some forward progress in that part of the portfolio. All else being equal, you would be pushing out duration if you thought we were in a kind of flat or falling interest rate environment in order to capture some of those gains. In terms of looking at what the central banks are doing, are you saying that you actually agree with what seems to be implied in some of the um, forward market pricing of bonds, that actually inflation is going to come back under control, it's going to go back close to target, and we're all going to go back to a happy, brave old world, I put it that way? Well, it's a bit more complicated than that, I suspect. I think we will see headline inflation rates come rattling down over the next six months as Rishi bravely forecasts that inflation would come down. And there is just a mechanical element, as I say, coming off these peaks from last year that means that is highly likely to occur. The underlying rate of inflation in the economy, which may be driven by more structural factors such as rental growth, wage growth, I think these will still be running quite high. So we could well see a situation where inflation comes down and then tends to rise back up again. And I think central banks will find it difficult to get inflation reliably back to the 2% kind of levels. But what we can see in the market is that that is the assumption, particularly in the US. The bond market is essentially assuming that inflation is going to go back to 2% and become very benign. And so that's already priced in. That gives us a lot of comfort. We are concerned that inflation could run higher. But if we're wrong, then that's already priced into the market. If we're right, then we should pick up additional return from the fact that the market underestimated the inflation outturn. 
Then let's just talk about the equity market because that has been, as I say, pretty remarkable this year in some respects. We've seen strong performance from the US market and from Japan, which I think is something you were expecting in the latter case. But the US market, with this very narrow breadth dominated by these tech names and all the excitement about AI, how sorry are you that you missed that particular performance in the equity market, shall we say? I think we can say with hindsight, extremely sorry. We were just taking a look at the FANG Plus Index. Many of your listeners will be familiar with the FANGs, but essentially Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, and the Plus bit counts for Tesla, AMD, Snowflake, NVIDIA. There might be one or two in there, but it's an equal weighted index. That index is up 75% this year. We sorely missed being very, very underweight. We have very low exposure to these names. So I think we can chalk that down as an error. But why did we make that error? These companies in aggregate are now on an earnings multiple of 40. Over the last 12 months, their revenues and earnings have gone backwards. They are forecast to deliver some moderate growth next year. But I think the 2022 to 2024 growth rate will be 2 or 3%. And their return on equity is notably high. So these are undoubtedly phenomenal businesses. But essentially, that part of the market seems to us has seen an extraordinary re-rating based on this great excitement around AI as a technology. But we can't necessarily see that AI is definitely going to provide huge profits for this select group of companies. It might be the very form of disruption that undermines their business models. The most uh, popular form of AI, certainly in the retail market, the chat GBT application was developed by a startup. You know, Microsoft did go and buy it, but uh, that shows the risk to these companies as well as the opportunities. So we're a little bemused, but if you strip out about 10 companies, which admittedly collectively are absolutely huge, they probably represent more than 25% of the US market, everywhere else has actually been quite soft. You know, the value parts of the US market has been have been weak. The Dow Jones Index, for example, which has got quite a value orientation, is actually down this year. Investment trusts in aggregate have not been strong performers seen widening discounts and fairly pedestrian performance. So I think, as I was talking about before, we moved from a period which we characterise as the everything bubble, where bonds and equities looked overpriced 12 or 18 months ago, whereas today it feels to us like we're in an environment which is really more like the 2000.com bubble or the kind of run-up to that, And if you look at companies trading at more than 10 times revenues in in the S&P 500, there's a very similar number of those to kind of 1998, 99. So in, in a sense, what I mean by that is you've got this collection of very highly prized companies. And then you do have these pockets of good value, both in the US market and the global market. And that's been a very big change. Looking globally, we would um, highlight the Japanese stock market and the UK stock market as areas that look particularly um, interesting to us, and indeed certain parts of the uh, investment trust market. 
Well, we'll come back to the investment trust in just a moment, because that is obviously our main focus. But just on that, in terms of the UK and Japan, are you actually increasing your exposure there? I mean, you already, I think, have an overweight, as it were, in Japan, out of your very small equity holdings. But you still think there's value there? Yeah, absolutely. We're not, no. Within our small weight to equities, we have about a large exposure to Japan and the UK that we can get. So in, in one sense, we're all into those markets. We could, of course, increase our equity weighting. You know, core to how we think about investing is that as values improve in asset classes and areas, you want to be expanding your asset allocation to those. We have quite large amounts of cash, treasury bills and short dated credit which those parts of the portfolio, that's about 30%, is yielding about 55 for the UK Treasury bills. Those are short-dated government bonds, up to about 7% on the investment-grade credit. So we can deploy those into equities, but to date, we haven't. There's a number of features of the current environment which feel to us like some of these value markets are unlikely to be raw enough, but it's certainly something we're looking at um, very carefully. So you make a very important point, which is, of course, that in this environment, we do now have competition. There are significant yields to be had on relatively safe instruments anyway, by comparison. So if the world pans out as you think, are you more likely to put more money into longer duration bonds or would you be adding to some equities as well in that environment? It does depend, obviously, on other factors, but just as a general proposition, what would it take to get you to put more into risk assets as opposed to taking more of these steady, stable, higher yielding things that are available with pretty little credit risk anyway? Yeah, we'd really like to see some of the hot air come out of the US market. You know, if the US sneezes, everyone else gets a cold. We think that that pocket of high valuations in the fan plus stocks is really quite extreme now. We think it's quite likely that um, some of the, um, you know, 12 months ago, these companies were identified as being a particular risk to rising interest rates because they have cash flow, huge assumed growth rates in the future. And if you increase your discount rate on those cash flows a long way out, it means that the valuations are very sensitive. So this was a narrative around why these stocks sold off very hard last year. Now, as interest rates actually have been rising very significantly this year, as I say, the fan plus index is up 75%. So that narrative has been completely parked into a discussion about AI, it's changing the world. These are definitely going to be the winners and it's going to be phenomenally profitable. So we think that that is a rather fragile kind of construct because the underlying fundamentals may well undermine it. But in an environment where the hot air is coming out of those markets, we just think it's unlikely that we're going to see high levels of forward movement in some of the value areas we hope a bit like 2022 that they can outperform in a in a relative way. But in absolute terms, it's likely to be pedestrian. But that's the kind of thing we'd be looking at as we think about recycling some of our cash into uh, risk assets. Let's then move on and talk about this environment of rising bond yields, which has been the dominant factor of the last 18 months. That's obviously had a very profound impact on the investment trust sector. And you do invest in other investment trusts, along with ETFs. They're your main way of getting exposure into risk assets. Are you surprised by the extent of the derating we've seen? Because it's been across both equity investment trusts and, obviously, more importantly, alternatives have taken a real pummeling from rising bond yields, uh, many of them having been sold on their yield attractiveness. Have you been surprised by the scale of the derating uh, that's affected both parts of the uh, 
investment trust universe? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the irony is that our bond portfolio, which represents including cash, treasury bills and credit, if we roll all of that up, we're about 75% in bonds. And that part of the portfolio has actually done pretty well, notwithstanding this interest rate rise. The bit of the portfolio that's actually caused us most trouble has been the equity part of the portfolio with a particularly marked weakness in property and infrastructure, uh, which today represent about 8% of our portfolio. So these kind of high-yielding alternative income investments have been incredibly popular over the last few years as interest rates were rock bottom. A number of investors looked to these kind of investments, which often have very secure, at least partially index-linked cash flows as a way of accessing higher levels of yields, typically about 5 or 6% on a number of the new issues. And they were seen, seen as being kind of stable, inflation-protected, decent yields at a time when that wasn't uh, available. On the revenue lines of these companies, property and infra, not all of them, but a number of them have actually delivered on that investment thesis. You know, they have benefited from higher power price, higher inflation, But what we've seen is a dramatic re-rating of those cash flows. You know, in a world where you can get 5.5% on a short-dated government bond, no one is interested in holding these assets yielding 5 or 6%. So you've got a few things going on, but we think one of the key features is the fact that a large number of investors on these registers are just seeking to sell out and redeploy into yielding assets elsewhere. They're not particularly focused on the valuations at which they're selling out. They're just saying, I don't want to get a 5% yield here. I'll get a 5% yield elsewhere. But I do think this has resulted in the valuations of these assets becoming extremely depressed because these are growing revenue streams. We think now that they're valued, a number of these, these opportunities on about between 9 and 10% IRRs. And those are actually very high returns historically for these kind of asset classes. So yeah, we have been surprised at how far these have slid. I think there is a technical explanation in part as investors are kind of rotating out of these areas into the government bond market. And there's just not enough people on the other side, at least in the short term, to keep... Um, that old thing, more sellers and buyers, yeah. But of course, the market is a correcting mechanism. So at some point, you think there would be when the value gets sufficiently low. I noticed some of the brokers have been coming out talking about infrastructure in particular as looking attractive. And of course, if you're comparing it to a gilt, which has got a nominal return, and then you, these things have got a certain amount of inflation linkage in them, most of them, certainly in the infrastructure and less extent property and the renewables. So you can see a point at which that would cross over, particularly if inflation does come down, as you think then suddenly these uh, real returns that you might then be able to get would be quite attractive. Yeah, we've seen the first little signs of that. When the good inflation numbers came out in the US, interest rates dropped in the US. And because global bond markets are highly correlated, they actually fell in the UK and Europe in a number of jurisdictions. And actually, some of these assets had really quite a good day. They are very, very bonded out. They're trading in aggregate in high teens discounts now. Uh, but they had a good day and you can see a world in which they partially snap back quite quickly. But equally, some of these technical dynamics could have further to run. 
certainly where these assets are held by daily dealing multi-asset funds that are receiving redemptions, for example, it simply doesn't matter what the value is. These funds will need to raise cash to distribute. And this area, having performed really quite poorly over the last 12 months, is simply an area that people are raising money at the moment. So, yeah, I think you're right that there is an increasingly strong medium-term case for these assets. But that doesn't mean that they can't fall further. The case can improve more. So we're looking at that very carefully. Well, they have rallied in the last few days, uh, some of them anyway. But they've also highlighted the importance of differentiating between individual trusts within these sectors. There's a general issue, isn't there, for infrastructure, renewables, and also uh, commercial property, about who's gone into this period with their balance sheets in the right shape and who have gone into this period with perhaps issues about either commitments or too much debt or whatever. Do you think we will see some signs of distress coming out of one or two uh, names across these sectors? We've seen some already, perhaps. Yeah, we have seen some already. And I think probably the best example of this would be a company like Digi9. That's a digital infrastructure company that was growing very fast. It did at least one and possibly two too many transactions. And as interest rates came thundering up, it had a pretty exposed balance sheet It hadn't fixed out all of its debt and it got caught in a really quite savage negative cycle. So even though the underlying assets may be performing absolutely fine, it has really struggled because the high levels of debt. So that's something we look at. You know, a number of these assets on an ungeared basis, these valuation levels would be really quite interesting But when they're quite highly geared, there could be issues around potential rights issues, refinancing issues, and these can be extremely challenging to manage for the companies. So, yeah, you've got to pick through with a bit of care. And there's a very long tail of them. There was a lot of issuance. So I'm sure we're going to see underlying asset sales, consolidation. Um, There doesn't seem any way out of... uh, Essentially, we've seen a part of the market that's grown very fast, Often you get a structure where you have a very long tail of companies larger than the market can sustain, and then you just need a a process of pruning that out. And then in a period of time, you've right-sized and we can move off into the next cycle. Can we just talk then, before we pick up on some point you made there, about commercial property, because there's a slightly different issue there. There's concerns there. Obviously, higher bond yields are negative for those uh, commercial property trusts that have significant gearing or too much gearing, maybe, or too expensive debt, or whatever it might be. Uh, But they're also at risk from a recession, if that's what we're going to get. Traditionally, anyway, we would worry about that. What do you think about commercial property now? You say you had a significant holding in commercial property about 15 months ago, and you reduced that. But what do you think about what's happening in that sector now? Well, thinking of commercial property as essentially office blocks for simplicity, We didn't actually invest there. We were more in industrials, which would be kind of logistics um, as a shorthand. But commercial property, we are still avoiding. I think you're absolutely right to point out the fundamental challenge to their business model, as well as to the demand side, which could show up, you know, in time through voids, through reducing rents. On the extreme, I don't think this is a point for investment trusts, but you have HSBC leaving Canary Wharf, for example. It's hard to see who is going to take that space up. 
uh, HSBC are moving their global headquarters into the city. And on a smaller scale, this is happening in a wide variety of commercial property buildings. And I think the underlying market is clearly moving very slowly. So you have a lot of NAV marks that have not been kind of tested in a current market environment because the turnover of these assets is very low. So on the face of it, the attraction to these is they're all trading at very significant discounts. I think in practice, you've always got to ask a discount to what. For example, we were talking to a loan manager the other day that extends private loans in the property space. He had been talking to one of his suppliers who serviced some of these private loans who had said, of the 30 loans that came up for refinancing in the first quarter of this year, I think it was only about 10% refinanced as was originally anticipated. The rest were in this cycle of extending loans, increasing interest rates, essentially the loans going into some kind of default. And the sponsors that own these projects, the equity holders of these assets, are really going to, in time, be pushed to put those onto the market. And I think with that, we will see quite significant reductions in net asset values. So we'd be very nervous about commercial property as a general asset class. Now, within that, I'm sure there are going to be fantastic opportunities. You know, if you can buy the right asset with the right financing structure, I'm sure we'll see property specialists making a lot of money. But we're certainly not interested yet in having a general exposure to commercial property. It's interesting that we have seen a deal for CT Property Trust, for example, that's been essentially merging with another REIT. And Ediston is basically looking for a partner as well, looking for consolidation, while some of the others are still, you say, languishing and perform very poorly. Do you think we're going to see more of that going on as well? I mean, across the whole alternative sector, perhaps. Will there be some things have sold off so much they will either attract a bid or force consolidation? Yeah, absolutely. So we also saw Civitas, which was a specialist residential REIT, was taken private. So I think there are two mechanisms. Clearly, someone can bid for the entirety of the company or there can be a merger. All the companies can sell underlying assets. And I think there's a lot of discussion there. You know, I think there are a lot of companies that are looking at potentially selling assets to allow them to de-gear. So I'm sure we'll see a lot of activity there. The mergers in the M&A tend to take more time. And I don't think in aggregate they will be huge, but they can have a very big impact on sentiment. If there's a pattern of one or two companies getting taken private significantly above current market levels, people do start to take notice. I think um, one swallow doesn't make a summer, but by the time you've got two or three, then people will be starting to wonder if we're starting to turn. But there's a very vibrant dialogue now between investors and boards and managers about how to manage some of these, you know, double digit discounts that are blown out across the alternative asset space. I really think that a number of these companies will be forced into selling their underlying assets and uh, either de-gearing or buying in shares. One of the things that you do at Capital Gearing Trust, or historically because of your very long experience in dealing in the investment trust, is you do look for opportunities where corporate events can help to bring a discount in. Is that something you're looking at at the same time at the moment? Are there opportunities of that kind coming up? There absolutely are. So I would split that out really between conventional investment trusts that hold liquid underlying equities of various sorts. 
uh, or traded equities. They may not all be liquid, like a small cap trust, the underlying may, may not be that liquid, but they have a traded price. And then you've got your alternatives where you are comparing any discount to an NAV that's being created by a model, essentially. So in that alternative space, which we've talked about, you've always got to say, but is the model right? Whereas in the traded area, well, the market can be wrong, but essentially that is the price that the market is willing to pay for these equities today. So that's a very interesting area. Uh, Discounts on commercial investment trusts in aggregate are about where they were in the trough of the global financial crisis. Now, you know, earlier this year, there was a real concentration around certain of the more growthy names. You know, just to pick out a banner name, you have something like Scottish Mortgage, that is such a big part of the total investment trust sector, that as that moved from a premium to a discount, that had a huge impact on the average weightings in the sector. And you have a lot of growthy companies, sometimes run by Bailey Gifford and sometimes run by others that have gone to a discount. And we were finding earlier this year, if you took those out, if you didn't want specific exposure to those kind of asset classes, there weren't that many opportunities that were really exciting elsewhere, even though at a headline level, aggregate discounts were wide. But what we've been seeing in the last couple of months, particularly in this last month, you know, is this real bifurcation. The fans are off to the races, but so many other parts. UK small cap would be a good example. We've talked about uh, infra and pockets of the property market. You know, lots of other parts of the market, discounts in general, have continued to slide. So it doesn't feel like a bull market in anything outside about 15 stocks. In fact, it feels like a bear market. And that has exposed a number of opportunities. So yeah, just over the last couple of weeks, we're monitoring very closely about eight or nine situations any given day. We've usually got two or three on the blotter that we're actually buying in. As you say, there are parts of the market where you can have quite high levels of certainty that you're going to get the performance of the underlying portfolio plus some discount narrowing. You can have more than an educated guess that you're going to get a decent return. Do you think that boards are being sufficiently receptive to shareholders who come along with suggestions, ideas, proposals to narrow the discount or to take advantage of these anomalies that are appearing? Or are you just doing it on pure valuation grounds? We find normally that in the first conversation you have with most directors that they can be a bit kind of defensive. There can be a bit of a distance between investment trust directors and shareholders And they can often perceive comments as being quite kind of hostile. But we have tended to find that when you build a relationship and you come back two or three times, you make your case, uh, a bit of time passes, you go back in, you're consistent. This can have a real impact on thinking over time. Shareholder engagement can be very, very powerful over time. And then there's always the opportunity, if there's not much uh, receptiveness, to escalate things. But I think that points to these opportunities won't necessarily come right overnight. It's quite a long-term approach, really. And uh, if it were easy, then they wouldn't exist. We're just consistently repeating the same messages about what boards need to do to manage their discount. And over time, it has an impact. Peter Spiller has been on record as saying that it does to do with it in theory, all discounts are voluntary in a sense, because you can. But there are limits, certainly, to what you can do if you're in the alternative space. Some of them are now doing share buybacks, sort of putting their toe in. It doesn't seem to have much effect so far. 
Though I noticed this week we saw something like Seraphim Space shoot up because they said they were going to do some buybacks. That was an interesting one, I thought. Well, you're right, buybacks aren't the only answer, but they are a very, very important tool. To put it the other way around, we have never had a conversation with a board, not once, where they say, I've got this terrible problem. My trust is trading on a 10 premium. I just don't know what to do about it. You know, the answer is they issue shares like it's Christmas and go and buy some some more assets. It's not terribly complicated to work out that the inverse should also be the case. Okay, depending on the asset class, you might need a wider margin, you know, to sell an infrastructure asset, for example, is not a trivial thing. There's quite a lot of costs involved. It's quite hard to work out as you start the process what the asset precisely is going to be worth. But by the time you're on mid or high teens discount, there is just no doubt in our minds whatsoever that these companies should be realizing assets. It may or may not bring the discount in. But frankly, if you can buy a pound for 85p, why wouldn't you keep doing it? It's just the correct capital allocation. Quite often we hear boards coming and telling us, well, now's not the right time. Our portfolio is absolutely brilliant. And also we can buy these other assets, which are also absolutely amazing. You know, the market prices are very low. Well, all of these things can't be true. If this other attractive asset is better than your current portfolio, well, you should sell your current portfolio and buy those assets and also buy in shares. You know, but the reality is that we find that managers particularly tend to somewhat fall in love with the assets that they bought. This is understandable. It makes a lot of sense for a start. It pays their salaries. Secondly, there's been a huge amount of effort and brain power that's been used to pull together these portfolios. But the reality is that if you can buy a pound for 85p, you should be doing that. It's shooting a penalty in football without a goalkeeper. It is just the right way for a board and a company to operate. So we're incredibly clear about that. In investment trusts, in conventional trusts, for us, it's even clearer. Capital Gearing Trust, as I mentioned, has a discount control policy. We're out there at the moment in the market buying a pound for 98p almost every day. And it's the right thing to do to protect our shareholders so they're not exposed. Any shareholder that does want to sell shares is not going to be exposed to a widening discount. And it's the right thing for continuing shareholders because buying a pound for 98p seems a great use of capital. So we are absolutely crystal clear that any company pursuing with reasonable levels of confidence about what their NAV is and a clear eye to where is the optimal use of the valuable investors' capital that they steward, that uh, a discount, you know, buying in shares makes a huge amount of sense. Of course, there are times when, frankly, the NAV is overstated. And on the face of it, you might have a 15 discount, but it's, it's actually much, much narrower than that. But then we're into a world of these assets have to get revalued properly so that investors can understand the situation that the actual net asset values, rather than pretending that you have this kind of inflated asset value. I think that's the point, isn't it? Provided your asset value, if you believe in it. And if you don't believe in it as a board, then you should be doing something about that as well. You have to think, and perhaps there have been some cases where that hasn't happened. You get these odd situations like Civitas, where the board didn't change the NAV, but then sold out at a big discount to the reported NAV. I mean, that shouldn't really happen. There might be special circumstances there, but that shouldn't really normally happen, should it? 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's not straightforward because sometimes these valuation marks, you know, if there's no transactional activity, then these valuation marks can be slow to move. There's nothing to benchmark them directly against. And that can be challenging. But I think also directors should be very clear and on the front foot about the fact if there are no transactional marks, it's unlikely that you're, you know, I think you've got to look very sceptical. It's almost certainly because, you know, sellers and buyers can't meet and sellers' expectations are probably too high. So the idea that you should be somehow anchored to valuations that were relevant 18 months ago when your shares are trading on very large discounts and there have been no marks in between, I just think, Boards, managers, valuers need to wake up and smell the coffee a bit. So if I could just sum up then finally, Alistair, if I've taken the sense of what you're saying the right way, you're saying there are lots of good opportunities in the investment trust sector at the moment, but the overriding macro situation and concern about inflation and interest rates, where it's going to peak and so on, means that you, for one, are not actively pursuing them in terms of making huge commitments to that particular strategy at the moment. Would that be a fair summary? Yeah, I think you've summed it up really well. I mean, when you can get 5 to 5.5% on short-dated government bonds, that sets a very high bar to the kind of opportunities that you want to be looking at. You know, I think you want to be pretty confident that if you're investing in equities, that there'll be something close to a 10% IRR without too much risk. And there are a number of opportunities that look fairly close to that now. But against a backdrop where we're extremely concerned about the US market, what could happen there? And being a defensive trust with a wealth preservation mandate, you know, we're rotating our our risk asset holdings, which are fairly constrained, just over 25% of the portfolio into those areas that we think are most attractive. But we're not yet at a moment where we're selling down the T-bills and jumping into the equity market. So I think your characterization was a good one. I think the market is in flux. Bond yields have moved very rapidly. Certain parts of equity prices have moved very rapidly. We may be somewhere close to a bottom in alternative income, but there's not absolute certainty around that. So I think in our recent AGM, one of our investors characterized it as remaining in a defensive crouch. I think that is correct. But there absolutely are opportunities we're looking at and we we would have the dry powder available to allocate into equities in larger amounts if the backdrop looks more conducive. Yes, and of course, uh, as I said at the beginning, what markets do often confound us all and they may yet confound us still. Thank you so much, uh, Alistair. That is Alistair Lang, CEO of Capital Gearing Asset Management. And I shall look forward to hosting the podcast again next week with Simon Elliott and indeed another guest as well. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.